Well, we have a lot to cover tonight when it comes to the attribute of God's spirituality, God's spirituality. In fact, we started this evening singing a hymn that probably we have sung many, many times and often quite glibly or superficially, the hymn, Immortal, Invisible. And that hymn is far more profound than we can possibly realize. But the hymnist here attempts to to summarize and to capture the truth of God's spirituality. Let me just read the, the words of the first stanza. All of these words in one way or another relating to the truth that God is spirit. Stanza number one, immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty victorious, thy great name we praise. We talked about this the last time in our study already, that when it comes to the character of God, we really are at a loss, even within human language, to describe who He is. At the very best, we know that our language can be true, but it is still analogical. We recognize the fact that our language can never capture in absolute form, in complete, perfect form, that which God is. But thankfully, God himself has condescended and has given us the words. He has condescended to to choose the terms and the pictures and the descriptions that will help us understand who he is because he is holy other. We cannot ascend to him to study him He must descend to us in that gracious condescension and in that grace revealed to us in words and descriptions that which is true about him, adequate about him in human language. And certainly when it comes to the essence of God, we are really grappling with much that is a mystery to us, with much that is simply beyond our experience And as I said, the spirituality of God certainly fits within that category. What do we mean when we say that God is spirit? Let's begin with the definition of that term. When we say that God is spirit, we mean this. The spirituality of God refers to his unique essence. That he does not consist of created substances like matter but that he is immaterial and therefore imperceptible to human senses. God is spirit. And and when Jesus says that in John chapter 4 verse 24, he is not simply saying that God is a spirit as if he belongs to a class that is occupied by many others who are spiritual Rather, Jesus says God is spirit, emphasizing in very emphatic language there in the original Greek text that God belongs in a class of his own. There is no other existence that is like God. There is no other existence that can be called spiritual 
in that sense. His essence is incomparable. He is the most perfect form of existence. And when we say he is spiritual, we mean he is immaterial, not material. We, we mean that he is invisible, not visible, that he is unlimited, not limited, and he is simple and not, not made up of various components. Let's dive down deeper into what that means. When we affirm that God is spirit, as I said, we are making an affirmation about his immaterial existence. He has no chemical properties that comprise him or define him. He he does not have characteristics of size or dimension. We can say that he is incorruptible, and even as the hymnist wrote, he is immortal in that he does not grow or shrink or deteriorate. He is not physical light. He is not physical energy. He created those things on the first day of creation, along with all space itself. We cannot say that God is spirit means that he is like the light or is the light that we see. Moreover, He's not air. To say that God is spirit is not to say that he is air or that he's a vapor. For those things too are comprised of chemical components, material components. Those things too, air and vapor and light and energy, all those things are things that God himself created. Instead, when we say that God is spirit, we're saying he is utterly distinct from all creation, all created matter. He is distinct from time. He is distinct from matter. He is distinct from space. To affirm that God is spirit is to affirm that he is incorporeal, which means he does not have a body. He is bodiless, thus incorporeal is what we say. To be corporeal means to have a physical body, and God does not have a physical body. One theologian says it this way, incorporeality means that God is infinite. He has no body and therefore no boundaries to his being. Also, when we affirm that God is spirit, we also affirm that he is simple, as theologians have said. Not that he is simplistic, not that he It has no profundity to him, but he is simple in that he is not a composite being. He is not made up of various parts and components. He is simple in that he is one. He is spirit. God is neither flesh and blood, nor is he body and spirit. Those things mark us. And that's why it's so difficult for us to understand the essence of God. We'll we'll talk about this in a few minutes, but yes, we are spiritual as well, but in a, a significantly different way, in a categorically, definitionally different way than God is spirit. We are spirit by virtue of the fact that our spirits are analogous to God, but very different. Moreover, we exist as component beings. We are spirit and body. We have flesh and bone that define us. 
as well as having spiritual essence that defines us as well. But in this way, again, we are, we are very, very different from God. God is holy other. Moreover, to affirm that God is spirit is to affirm that he is visible. He cannot be identified. He cannot be be beheld. He cannot be seen or touched according to material means. That does not apply to who God is. Well, that immediately raises the question then about angels and about human beings. We recognize that angels and human beings also have that spiritual aspect to them. We know, for example, that that angelic beings are spirits. That's what Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 says. The writer of Hebrews says that angels are ministering spirits. And, And throughout Scripture, you have them being called different names. If you look in, the, in Job, for example, in Job chapter 1, you, you have the angels being called the sons of God because they reflect that spiritual essence of God. In the, in the Gospels, you have repeated references to angels and demons, and in particular, references to unclean spirits. So you have the angels, the holy angels, and the unclean spirits, and they do not have flesh and blood. In Luke chapter 24, verse 9, Jesus says that the spirits do not have flesh and bones, but they do have a spiritual essence. So what does that refer to? And we know, as I said, that human beings are also spiritual, but In the case of human beings, in the case of you, and in the case of me, we possess both body and spirit, and and we are created to be both body and spirit at the same time. So how do we understand this in relationship to God as spirit? And the answer is this. The spiritual existence of both angels and humans is what we can call analogous to God's existence, but it's fundamentally different. We, that is angels and human beings, are creatures. That means what marks us as spiritual beings is derivative in nature, that that we're limited, that our spiritual existence is limited. There are boundaries to us, and there are boundaries to the angels. We, we read in the Scriptures that, that angels can move in between that spiritual realm and the physical realm, but they have to move in order to be there. They're limited. They're not omnipresent, and they're not omniscient. And, and we, we read of, of angels being summoned and sent, coming into the presence, the special, glorious manifestation of God's presence and exiting that presence because those spiritual beings are limited. They have boundaries. So they are different than the spiritual essence of God. And we too, in our spiritual existence, our our essence is to be unified between the components of of spiritual existence and, and bodily existence. And it isn't good for us to be apart from our bodies. And we know that the time will come, if the Lord tarries, that that we will die. 
and our souls will go to be with the Lord, but that's not the end. We know there's the doctrine of resurrection, which reunites us as souls back with our bodies to be in the ideal state that God has created us to be. But all of that is limited. In God, there is no limitation. He is immortal. He is invisible. He is incorporeal. He is invisible. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines God this way. What is God? It answers in this fourth question, God is spirit. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God is spirit. Now, this perfection of spirituality stands in direct contrast to the prevalent worldview today called materialism. The belief that material substance is the ultimate ground of of being. It's the prevailing worldview today that everything is defined by that material substance from which it is, is made. In fact, many religions advocate this idea as well. For example, Mormonism. And in a statement by Joseph Smith in his Doctrines and Covenants, he said this, The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, the Son also. But the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. Were it not so, the Holy Ghost could not indwell us. Now, there is a very tiny element of truth to that, that the Holy Spirit indwells, the Scripture teaches, the Holy Spirit indwells those who are God's elect. And it is by virtue of the fact that God is Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is Spirit, that He is able to indwell believers. But where Joseph Smith gets it all wrong, damnably wrong, is that he believes that the Father and the Son are material. They're corporeal in nature. And as we're going to see, that that is simply contrary to the very clear and explicit teaching of God's Word. God is spirit. Invisible, immortal, incorporeal. He is spirit. Now, when we talk about the spirituality of God, we also have to discuss for a moment what it doesn't mean. What does God's spirituality not mean? And there's a couple of important qualifications to make here. Number one, that God is spirit does not mean that anything material is inherently evil. You are probably familiar with the worldview of dualism such as what was manifest in the early centuries of church history, that that threat to the church posed by the movement called Gnosticism. Gnosticism taught this dualistic worldview that, on the one hand, because God is spirit, everything spiritual is inherently good, 
while everything not spiritual, everything material, is by default evil. And so the Gnostics taught that the body is a prison for the soul and that salvation is going to be found in, in liberation from the body. In, in, in having the body release the soul. That is the, the view of dualism. And it was rightly denounced as heresy. Why? Because if we look at a text like Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, we read that it was God himself who directly and personally, through the power of his word, and out of nothing, he creates time and space and matter. He creates man. He forms man out of the dust. And he calls all of that very good. It's important to note that because God is spirit, it does not follow then that everything that's material is evil. In fact, what we would say is this. What makes our experience in this material world today so painful, why there is the groaning that we have in this world today is not because, really, because of physical reasons. It's because of the spiritual reality of sin. It is sin that has made this material world, that which God created as very good, it is sin the spiritual principle of sin that has corrupted the material world. Moreover, a second qualification to introduce here is is this, that God is spirit, does not preclude him from entering into this material world. It does not preclude him from revealing himself within this material world. It does not preclude him from interacting with, with this material world. Not only did he himself create it, but he enters into it and manifests himself within it. As we're going to see, he doesn't hesitate to use even material substances to define himself in an analogous way in order for us to help understand him. Moreover, we find that great truth of the incarnation as that ultimate entrance of the holy other God into this material world to identify with it. John chapter 1.14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now when the Son of God entered into this world, it's not that his divine nature was somehow changed into something that was other than pure spiritual existence. But what he did was take on the form of a material nature. Uh, he took on the form of a, of a human, took on human flesh. And the amazing thing is, is that he bears that now, the Son of God does, permanently. Now let's look at some biblical testimony from which all of these definitions and qualifications arise. The biblical testimony to God's spirituality. We can look at it specifically in two areas. There there are a lot of other ways that we could 
see the spirituality of God in its implications throughout Scripture, such as his immutability, because he's spirit, because he's not matter, he never changes. We'll get to God's immutability later. We, we can talk about God's simplicity. That is another implication of his spirituality. We'll talk about that more later. And we can talk about God's om, omnipresence, that he is everywhere because he's without limitation. That also is an implication of God's spirituality. We'll talk about those texts more later. Instead, let's look at a few texts that communicate God's spirituality in very, very direct fashion. First of all, let's look at the scriptural testimony to God's incorporeality, that he does not have a material existence, nor is he limited by material boundaries. Psalm 139 Verse 7, you may not have really thought of this, but look at this text. The psalmist David, in this psalm of praise to God, says this, Where can I go from your spirit? Notice the emphasis on the spiritual essence of God. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? And the answer to that is nowhere, because God is everywhere where there is a a there. There is no limitations. There is no time. There is no place. There is no space. There is no form of existence where God is not. And the psalmist recognizes that. And the spirituality of God means that wherever he is, wherever the psalmist is, God is fully there. In Isaiah chapter 31, we have a a comparison made and a woe pronounced on, on Judah for looking to Egypt for material help. And we read these words in Isaiah 31 verses 1 and 3. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and who rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. Stop there for just a moment. The the Jews here are being condemned because of their materialistic worldview. That they believe that their help is ultimately connected to the material world. They are facing problems in their material existence. Threats. And in response to the threat of their safety and well-being, they simply look to more material factors, to more material sources as the solution. We read further, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. Now the Egyptians are men, and not God, and their horses are are flesh and not spirit. Here we have put in great distinction the difference between the material world and the spiritual world. The difference between looking to man, looking to material uh, ammunition, to material defenses, as opposed to looking to God as spirit who transcends all of that material world. And as I said in that most direct statement of John chapter 4, verse 24, we read that God is spirit. 
And as I said, in the original, it's very emphatic. God is spirit. The emphasis being on spirit, that however we conceive of him for our thoughts to be true, we must understand him as spirit. In fact, as we look at that incident, that interaction between Jesus and that Samaritan woman, we we find a very interesting dialogue. It begins in verse 20. It begins before that, but let's look specifically at verse 20, where the Samaritan woman expresses her confusion about God, about who God is. Samaritan woman says in John 4.20, our fathers, that is the Samaritans, the Samaritans had a, a, a defunct kind of worship, a, a, an unorthodox, an, a heretical kind of worship. But the Samaritan woman says, our fathers, the Samaritans, worshipped in this mountain, and you people say, that is the Jews, you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And that was what God himself had stipulated. And the Samaritans were in opposition. Now we find Jesus' correction then in verses 21 to 24. Let's notice how he responds. He first begins by identifying her core problem. Jesus says, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus then, in verse 23, goes on to explain the need. He says, an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And then, we find the basis for that statement in verse 24. God is spirit, and those who, must, or those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Why does it flow out of the truth that God is spirit, that worshipers must worship in spirit and truth? And it comes back to what Jesus says when he diagnoses her problem. She had a view of materialism. That God was worshipped in some kind of material way. That that he was worshipped in a way, a material way that was crafted by the Samaritans themselves in that mountain in Samaria. And Jesus corrects her and says, no, you must worship in spirit. Not in material forms and rituals, but in spirit. Moreover, he recognizes or diagnoses her problem with the truth. When he says, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, he's placing an emphasis on revealed truth, on the knowledge of God and how he is to be worshipped as God has revealed it that has come through God's revelation, through the truth. And as a result, Jesus says, you must worship in spirit and truth. Why? Because God the God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel, the one true God, the God who has revealed Himself redemptively, He is Spirit. 
we also can look at the Scripture's testimony about God's invisibility. This too testifies to the reality that God is spirit, that God cannot be identified. He cannot be beheld by man's senses. There are many texts to this extent. John chapter 1 verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. No one has seen God at any time. John 5 verse 37, Jesus says, and the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice nor at any time seen his form. A little later in John chapter 6, verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God, that is the Son, he has seen the Father. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, speaking of the incarnate Jesus, he is the in the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. When we get to Paul's letter to Timothy, we have two very strong statements to this effect. In John, or in First Timothy chapter 1, after Paul gives a short testimony as to how he, as the chief of sinners, was saved to be a trophy of God's grace, Paul then breaks out in benediction, And as Paul thinks of all of his thanksgiving to God for who God is, he he settles on these words. He says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. All of those phrases, all of those descriptions point to the spirituality of God. He is eternal in that as spirit, he is not subject to corruption, to change. Because he's not made up of matter. He's not subject to time. He is immortal. He does not succumb to the the effects from outside of himself that we as mortals succumb to. He is invisible. Paul continues, he says, the only God, as Spirit, He is the only God. And Paul therefore gives Him glory and honor. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, we have another reference to this. Paul writes, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality, And dwells in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He alone possesses immortality, and he dwells in in a kind of light, not the material light that we know of. It's an unapproachable light, and whom no man has seen or can see. We find testimony of that also in Hebrews eleven twenty seven, speaking of faith and Moses' faith. 
that he did not fear the wrath of the king, but he endured as seeing him who is unseen. That's the nature of faith, isn't it? Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, confidence in that which is unseen, verse 3. 1 John 4 verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Putting those texts and others together, Charles Hodge said this. He said, quote, everywhere in the Old and in the New Testament, God is represented as a spiritual being without form, invisible, whom no man hath seen nor can see, dwelling in light which no man can approach unto, and full of glory. As not only the creator and preserver, but as the governor of all things, as everywhere present and everywhere imparting life and securing order. Now that said, you might raise a question. What about the language in Scripture that describes God as physical? Uh, The language that someone like Joseph Smith misunderstood the language that uses physical form to describe God. For example, Isaiah 53 verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear so dull that it cannot hear. Wait a minute. If God is immaterial, incorporeal, how can we describe him as having a hand and as having an ear? In Second Chronicles 2 verse 9, For the eyes of the Lord... Move to and fro throughout the earth. Or in Daniel 7 verse 9, we have this description of the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days actually sits down. That's material. Not only that, but his vesture, his clothing, that's material, was white like snow. And we read there in Daniel chapter 7 that he had hair on his head that was like pure wool. What does that communicate? Is this perhaps challenging that that assertion that God is spirit? No. In these instances where God describes himself according to human form, we have powerful examples of God's gracious condescension to us. That as he acts to make himself knowable to us who are weak and limited, we're creatures. That as he who is the transcendent God acts to make himself knowable to us, knowable within our own minds, he draws from our experience in order to describe himself. That is his gracious, his gracious condescension. He uses words that are most intimate to us. All of us who are sentient beings, thinking men, we very much know our bodies. We very much understand our physical form. And God goes to such an extent to make himself knowable that he draws from that most intimate experience that most innate knowledge that we have, and says, I am like this. We call these 
occasions or instances, anthropomorphisms. The use of human characteristics to describe what is not in reality human. Anthropomorphisms. It's from the the two Greek words. It's from the, the word anthropos, meaning man, and morphe, meaning form. So man form. And so this is something that even we do. We we use human characteristics to describe that which is not human. And for us, when we do that, we usually do it with things lower than ourselves. Look at so many of the children's cartoons filled with anthropomorphisms. You have foxes that have the face of men and speak like people. Anthropomorphism. Using human characteristics to describe what God is or what God is not in reality, but there's a reason for that. It's God's gracious condescension. He wants to be known by you. One writer says this, Through this device, we as finite creatures can understand what He is like. This infinite God must condescend to our level through such analogies to reveal Himself in ways that we can understand Him. These are blessed instances in Scripture. They're precious. And when we come across those anthropomorphisms, we must not be quick to try and explain them away as if to try and protect God and His transcendence. No, it is God Himself who has decided within that wisdom that He alone possesses to make Himself known to us, to identify with us, to describe himself in ways that we can understand. What glorious benevolence. But not only does God condescend to describe himself in human terms and human forms, there's also something called zoomorphisms. And that refers to God using the form of animals to describe himself. He he is not afraid to do that either. In fact, one of the most precious, the most precious uh, characteristics of God in this way is that he's often described as having wings which provide protection. And certainly that brings us to that those thoughts of a of a mother hen even protecting her chicks underneath her wings. God uses that because that's familiar to us and says, that's what I am like. In Hosea 13, verses 7 to 8, he calls himself a lion. He calls himself a leopard. He calls himself a bear. He's not afraid to do that, but that doesn't mean he's a leopard. doesn't mean he's a lion. doesn't mean he's a bear. But he uses those in order to communicate something of himself to us. God also does this with inanimate forms. He will often call himself a rock and a shield. And he even uses weather phenomenon to, to describe himself. He is the pillar of cloud and he is the pillar of fire. He's the thunder and lightning and thick cloud that enveloped Mount Sinai. He's the whirlwind in Job chapter 38. God uses these to help us understand, but in no way do those descriptions ever 
take away from the fact that God has said very clearly that He is Spirit. He is Spirit. Raises another question. And that question is, but haven't people seen God? If God is Spirit and He is invisible, if He is imperceivable to human senses, if our material, limited senses cannot identify Him because He's transcendent to those things, don't we have accounts of people seeing God? And I'm certainly not talking here about those glib, superficial people who say with such superficiality that they talk with God and they see Him and so on and so forth. Those people, by their glibness, show that they are deceived and deceiving. There's no such thing. The answer to this question, haven't people seen God, is an emphatic no. They haven't. Not in His full, absolute essence. As Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, no one can see. No one has the ability to see God in His full glory. But go back to the Old Testament, Exodus 33 verse 20, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. 1 Timothy 1.16, he dwells in inapproachable light. But in response to this question, even though we give this resounding no, we also offer a qualified yes. Yes. One church theologian by the name of Ambrose put it so well. He said this, it is not in our power to see him, but it is in his power to appear to us. John Feinberg describes it this way, although God's essential nature is spirit that does not preclude him from making his presence known through some physical phenomenon that manifests his presence to those who see or hear it. This shouldn't be entirely surprising, for God as creator of matter and spirit certainly ought to be able to supply whatever matter he needs on any occasion to manifest his presence. Exactly how God does this, of course, we cannot say. But he has said he manifests himself. These appearances of God that we read of in Scripture are called manifestations. They're manifestations in that they're not the full, infinite appearance of God in His majesty, but rather they are these limited manifestations when for the sake of His creation, He allows the veil to be pulled back. That veil of unapproachable light, He pulls it back a little bit and He allows us in a manifested form to see Him just a little. We see these in various categories. In the history of redemption. In the dreams and visions that the, the patriarchs saw as they beheld a manifestation of Yahweh. For example, think of Jacob at the bottom of that ladder. In that vision, he sees this ladder extending up into heaven. And at the top, he says, Yahweh was standing. What he saw was not Yahweh in his infinite majesty. He saw a gracious manifestation in that vision. We also see the or read of, 
of, of Isaiah who goes into the temple to worship in Isaiah 6, and he sees the throne room of God filled, and God sitting on a throne, and the angels around covering themselves to protect them against the glory of God. Was that God in His infinite majesty? No, that was a manifestation. Or we read of what's called the Theophanies, when Abraham speaks with the angel of the Lord, or Joshua speaks with the angel of the Lord. Manifestations where God allows part of Himself to manifest using material means to a material creature. Also, we see the manifestation of God in the incarnation of the Son of God. John 1.14, we've read this already, but we, we read it again. The Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But even that glory that was seen in the face of Jesus Christ was veiled and, and you remember the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter and James and John saw just a little bit of the unveiling, not even the full unveiling. Still a manifestation, but an ultimate manifestation of God to His creation in the incarnation of His Son. And we also know of this, according to the Scriptures, there will be a manifestation of God to us in glory that will be beyond what we could ever perceive now. We read, for example, in in, in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and following, this, this, this description of the new heavens and the new earth. And John writes this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. So we read that there is awaiting us as those who have been, have been mercifully saved. There's coming a time when in glory, in our glorified bodies, in our glorified spiritual existence, when all sin has been wiped away from us, we will have this manifestation of God that none of us can even now imagine. But still, even in that, that will not be the full, infinite glory. Even in that Revelation chapter 21 account, that will still be a gracious, though glorious, a gracious condescension of God to reveal Himself to His people. Now, just a few implications that we can draw from this precious truth. First of all, we must realize this. Number one, God's invisibility, His spirituality, is a grace to us as mortals. It's a grace to us as mortals. There are those who so casually speak of seeing or hearing God, and when they do that, they just, they just betray their own utter foolishness. 
We need to be, have this respect and adoration for God as spirit like Manoah did when he said to his wife after this appearance of a manifestation of the angel of the Lord comes to him and when it clicks into Manoah that there was a manifestation, not even God in his infinite glory, but just a manifestation as that angel with whom Manoah talked. Manoah says to his wife, we will surely die because we've seen God. He hadn't seen God, he'd seen but a manifestation. But he recognizes what that spirit means. And for him as a mortal, it would mean his utter extinction. Isaiah 6 verse 5. Even in that manifestation there in Isaiah's vision, Isaiah says, woe is me, I am ruined. Why? Here's my mortality. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Revelation 1 verse 17, even when John sees the glorified Jesus Christ, a manifestation of the glory of God, John says this, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. So many of the songs today that are called Christian songs just totally don't get this. I was going through some of these these songs, these pop Christian songs, so many of them produced by companies like Hillsong, and they are companies, they're in it for financial gain. And one of them says this, I want to know you, I want to know you, I want to hear your voice. I want to know you more. I want to touch you. I want to see your face. I want to know you more. Over and over again, that's, a, that's essentially the song. And it's sung with such superficiality. No, it is a grace of God that in our mortality, we do not see Him. That He is invisible. Number two, creating an image, any image, to represent God is idolatry. Now again, this is the, the propensity of human flesh to want to reduce God to an image. To take all that God is in his unlimited, infinite spiritual existence and bring it down into something that you can put on a pedestal in your home or on a dashboard or hang from a rearview mirror. And it's all idolatry. It's all idolatry. That God is spirit forms the basis for his absolute prohibition of fashioning any images that are used to worship him. And this speaks not just of physical images, but of mental images when in our minds we form material substances in our thoughts. We carve out material things in our thoughts. And that too is idolatrous. You cannot equate God with some particular object that you fixate on in your thinking. It is a violation of the second commandment. Charles Hodge says this, idolatry consists not only in the worship of false gods, but also in the worship of the true God by images. God has the exclusive right to use terms and word pictures to describe himself, but we cannot take that any further. 
And that God says that he is the lion of Judah does not mean that we can go and fashion a lion and then bow down to it. John Calvin put it this way, God's spiritual nature forbids our imagining anything earthly or carnal of him. Let's just go back to that second commandment. Notice what God says, what he himself put in the tablets of stone. Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He takes this very seriously. You could look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, read that later, where Moses, to the second generation of Israelites, expounds upon this second commandment, commanding them to have nothing to do with any images. And that was so foreign to the ancient world at that time, because every religion of the day had images in their temples. And the strange thing about the tabernacle of Israel was that there was nothing there. It was empty other than the words, the text that pointed men to God. Number three, worship must be offered in spirit and truth. Remember that most definitive statement, most emphatic statement that God is spirit is connected intimately with a reference to worship. And we need to take the time to think through this. We don't have time tonight, but it is the, my exhortation to you to go home and ponder this. How does the spirituality of God affect our worship of Him? It, it has, as Jesus says, it, it has direct implications. It must form our worship. And that is not only reference there. Paul makes reference to it in Acts chapter 17, verse 24, where he says to the pagan philosophers with all their skewed ideas, he said this, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell. He does not dwell in temples made by hands. And what that means is this, worship can never be limited to a particular physical location or a particular physical posture. It cannot be associated with any physical images. It cannot be based on our physical material preferences. Now think through that more. I'll just say this, so often when we think of worship, we think of what? What is material? The sounds of the music. Is it pleasing to my ears? That, when we equate worship with that, that is a violation of John 4.24. God is spirit. Dare we not equate worship of Him, associate worship with Him, with our material, physical preferences. Number four, you do not see him, but he sees you. 
God's invisibility, his spirituality easily leads us to the assumption that he does not see us. We're like those little kids who will put the hands over the eyes and think that if I can't see the person, the person can't see me. And we say, well, that's just juvenile. Well, many Christians live that way. Many men live that way. I can't see God. So in the privacy of my home, the lights turned off, whatever, he does not see me. Well, that is not true. God's spirituality means that he is without limit and he does not need light. He sees always. And there is not one part of your life that he sees more than another. There's not one place in your house that he sees more than another. He sees everything equally. Hebrews 4.13 puts it this way, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There's another, another aspect of this, a comforting one. In, John, or in Genesis 16 verse 13, the account of Hagar And God's gracious condescension to Hagar. And God gives Hagar there in the wilderness some words of comfort and encouragement. And a very precious name comes from Hagar because she calls God El Roy. The God who sees. And here is the wonderful comfort that comes from this. In the same way that we can look on the invisibility of God and conclude that maybe He doesn't see me, and that can be a temptation to sin, there can also be another consequence that comes from that, that in the midst of the trial and the suffering and the pain, you don't see God, you can't touch Him, you you can't measure His presence, you can't identify that He is there, and that leads to a conclusion that He has abandoned you. That's not who God is. It is His spirituality that tells you without a shadow of a doubt that He is there. He is El Roy, the God who sees. We always live, Coram Deo, in the sight of God. And so the question is then, what does He see? Number five, and we'll close with this implication, marvel at the incarnation of the Son of God. What supreme manifestation. What supreme grace. The God who is spirit, immortal, invisible, incorporeal. That God who is indestructible and incorruptible and infinite that he would take upon himself human form. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The word there, exegeomai, means to exegete. He has exegeted God. 
He has explained God. He has interpreted the invisible, the unseeable, the intangible. He has done that for us. And that is why we can then have that hope that I read earlier of Revelation chapter chapter 21, where, where we read of those words that there will be a time because of the redemption that this incarnate Son of God purchased for us, that we can look to that time, not in fear, but in earnest longing that, that, that we can hear that loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among us, and he will dwell among the people, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That is what we look forward to because of that great incarnation, that great ultimate manifestation of God, that there is coming a time when beyond what we can possibly hope for now, there is going to be an amazing manifestation when we will see God in a way that we cannot fathom, not in His infinity, but we will see Him in a glorious manifestation that the theologians of old called the beatific vision. And in fact, just closing, I want to read the lyrics of a hymn by R.C. Sproul that speak of this. It's called Highland Hymn, and the lyrics are as follows. Above the mists of highland hills, in far above the clear blue skies, the end of pain and earthly ills, when we shall see his eyes. His face now hidden from our sight, concealed from every hidden gaze, in hearts made pure from sinful flight, in the bliss that will amaze. We know not yet what we will be in heaven's final blessed state, but know we now that we shall see our Lord at heaven's gate. The beatific glory view that now our souls still long to see will make us all at once anew and like Him forever be. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ who came to this earth to manifest your glory in an ultimate way. We thank you for the redemption that he purchased for our souls. We thank you for how in his face we see a manifestation of your glory and that that glory now as those of the redeemed is transforming us more and more into your likeness. And we certainly look to the future when that moment will come. When in a way that we can only imagine and even then fall short, that we will behold a manifestation of your glory that will do away with every tear, with every sorrow, with every pain, and will usher us into eternal bliss. We do long for that. 
And we thank you for that in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.